0: We come back to this uh monumental text really, and really so many questions asked, so many answers given from just these few verses before us. And as we come to it today, we we're we're really confronted with another one. We're confronted with a basic question, one which whether we want to admit it or not, we've all asked ourselves at some time. And that is this, whether or not God is serious about His laws, whether or not when He makes a rule and tells people to obey it, and if they violate it, whether God is serious about punishment. We know we're supposed to say yes. All of our Sunday school teachers have told us yes. Countless sermons from... Numerous preachers have probably all told us that we're supposed to answer yes to that question, but the problem is that for many people that doesn't match their personal experience. They begin to doubt whether God really is serious about His laws, whether He really is serious about His rules, because quite frankly it seems that you or me or others have gotten away with an awful lot. We're not saying there are no consequences, but it certainly doesn't sound as bad as some people make it out to be. It doesn't quite match the doom and the gloom that we might hear on the pages of Scripture. And so people begin to wonder whether or not God isn't serious, really, for all that we read on the pages of Scripture, whether or not He isn't serious about punishing sin. But if you ever ever had a moment of doubt about that kind of question, if you've ever had a moment of skepticism about whether God is serious about His laws, stop for a moment and think about one striking reality, which is the cross of Jesus Christ. Think about the suffering of His own Son for a moment and then ask yourself how seriously God takes sin. Do you think... He cares whether His laws are broken. Do you think He cares whether there needs to be punishment for lawbreakers? Everything you see in the cross of Christ would cry out with one resounding message, Yes, God is very concerned about His law. He's very concerned about those who break it. He's very concerned about every single violation and that every single violation be punished and not one of them be ignored because the price that he demanded for the punishment is the highest price that could ever be paid. That's the message of the cross. In other words, the cross of Jesus Christ, which we so often speak about, for its grand demonstration of the love that God has for us, it is as equally a demonstration of the wrath that God has for us. In fact, God's wrath demanded such a punishment for sin, a punishment which only Christ Himself could have ever fully satisfied. Or we might say it, this way, that it was God's wrath that demanded the punishment for our sin, but it was God's love which offered a substitute to take that punishment for us. And these are really the realities that Paul is laboring to bring before us in the book of Romans, and particularly in Romans 3 as we come today to verses 20, 26 excuse me, 25 and 26, those two verses which really cap off a whole section dealing with God's righteousness revealed. How even back in verse 21, remember, the righteousness of God has been revealed. It has been revealed and ultimately it's revealed in the manifestation of how God's love and God's wrath are brought together perfectly at the cross of Jesus Christ. Or we might say, the cross of Jesus is at one and the same time the greatest manifestation of God's love and the greatest manifestation of God's wrath that has ever been put on display. In fact, it's the greatest manifestation of the wrath of God that will ever be put on display. You can take the judgment at the end of the world, you can take the tribulation, you can take the the day of the Lord and the pouring out of, of all of His wrath on the nations, and all of those things will not, in their combined fury, match the demonstration of the wrath of God that was given at the cross of Jesus Christ. This is Paul's point as we come to the end of this section here, and before he makes that, remember, he's already told us a number of truths about the righteousness of God. A number that we've been looking at already over the last couple of weeks. Most basic, you remember in verse 21, that this is a righteousness that is now manifested in the cross of Christ. Prior to the cross, it was promised Prior to the cross, it was spoken about, but it wasn't until the cross that it actually reached its manifestation. Secondly, remember, it's a righteousness that is consistent with Scripture. This is what Paul says also there in verse 21, that it was witnessed by the law and the prophets. And we detailed how all of that came as a promise, as a promise, as a promise, until eventually it was revealed, it was made clear in the cross of Christ. Thirdly, it's a righteousness that Paul says is apart from the law, verse 21, it's manifested apart from the law. In other words, it's not anything that we could ever do, anything that we could ever achieve, anything that we could ever present to receive this righteousness, fourthly it's a righteousness received by faith verse 22 the righteousness of god through faith in all for all those who believe this is the contrast between faith and works that paul continually makes it's his way of emphasizing that it's nothing you could ever do not even your faith is counted as merit or as a work or as anything that you present it is the the polar opposite of works as paul sets them in contrast over and over again fifthly remember it's without distinction This is a righteousness made available to everyone because it's needed by everyone. As he says in verse 23, because all have sinned and fall short of God's glory, therefore every one of them, if they're going to have any right standing before God, any righteousness, it must come as a free gift, which was our sixth point, that it's granted freely through grace. We are all justified By His grace as a gift. It isn't something that we offer anything in exchange for. Your right standing before God isn't anything that you can purchase or earn. The only way you'll ever have it is if you receive it as a gift. As if God gave to you what you could never possibly have on your own. Number seven. We saw that righteousness is purchased through redemption. As Paul says in verse 24, this is through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Purchase, we might say, not redemption, but through ransom, because that's really the meaning of the word. It was a price paid to change our status from slaves, from those who are captured, from those who are in bondage, to those who are free. This is why the gift of righteousness comes to us. At no cost to ourselves because the cost was paid by Christ. And all of that is well and good when we comprehend everything that Paul says from verse 21 through 24. It's all well and good. Freedom and grace and redemption and forgiveness and righteousness. All of those things, all of those rich benefits are great. And we might uh, still hear all of that And be left with the impression that God offers all of this to us. And the reason He offers all of this to us is because He so adores us. That He so cherishes us that He couldn't imagine eternity without us. We might imagine that all of this is because God found us so lovable that He was so compelled that He eventually had to set aside all of His demands that He was something like a, uh, like a capricious parent who spouts off threats all day long but when it comes time to actually administer consequences, they never follow through. But if you are tempted to think that way, about God, what you demonstrate is really you know nothing about Him and you know nothing about the cross. Because the crucifixion of Christ wasn't just some optional part of God's plan for redemption. It wasn't just some secondary avenue by which God wanted to bring us to Himself. It is the absolutely essential Irreplaceable and significant in ways that go far beyond some simply dramatic display of love. The cross of Christ not only demonstrates to us God's love, but it vindicates God for what would otherwise be his unjust action in saving us. It We might say it this way, it saves God from accusation. It justifies God in His work and in His role of justifying us, of forgiving our sins. In other words, without the cross of Christ, God would be guilty. He'd be guilty of violating His word. He'd be guilty of acting as a corrupt judge. He would be defiled according to His own law. And so He would be unworthy of saving anyone because He Himself would need salvation. But because of the wisdom of the cross, none of that is true. And all of this is Paul's point in the final true truths that he shares with us about the righteousness of God. The two that we want to give our attention to today. Number eight, this righteousness, Paul tells us, it is compatible with God's wrath. It is a righteousness that is compatible with the wrath of God. We all understand compatibility. We understand that because if we go out and buy a TV or buy some device and you want to use it together with another device, it has to have certain cables, it has to have certain software, it has to have certain ways of interacting, connections if you will, or it will not work or in some cases, if there is an incompatibility, you might actually wind up doing damage to one or both devices trying to bring them together. Well, trying to bring together the forgiveness or the love of God and the wrath of God, in many cases, people do damage to one or the other. But they do it all because they misunderstand really what the cross is all about. And Paul is basically explaining all of this to us. He's explained to us that this righteousness of God... In, in spite of all of its freeness, in spite of all of its love, in spite of all of its graciousness, this righteousness of God is perfectly compatible with God's wrath. It fully satisfies everything you've ever heard or read or thought about when it comes to the wrath of God. Everything God has ever said about His hatred for sin is absolutely true and is demonstrated for us in the cross of Jesus. We've heard from the very beginning, God told mankind in Adam and Eve that in the day that they sin, Genesis 3, 4 says, they will surely die. Now, it wasn't obviously talking about physical death. They didn't drop dead on the spot in the moment that they sinned. But He was essentially saying, That the moment that they sinned, they would be liable, they would be guilty, they would die spiritually, and they would be uh, liable to die eternally. They would face sure punishment. That's the word. And he reiterates this, you come to Exodus 34, and the Lord proclaims His name to Moses, the Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But, he says, a God who will by no means clear the guilty. And we're never told in Exodus how that can be. Moses never really explains to us the theology behind that. How in the world can you have a God who is so forgiving, who is so gracious, who is so merciful, and at the same time be absolutely uh, uh, certain that every guilty person will face punishment? Prophet Nahum picks this up later on and recasts it for Israel hundreds of years later writing in his book, he says in chapter 1, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on all His adversaries and keeps wrath for His enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Who can stand Before His indignation. Who can endure the heat of His anger? His wrath is poured out like the fire. And along with all of those passages that warn about God's absolute punishment of our sin, along with all of those come all of those verses that talk to us about the curses and the anger of God when it comes to our disobedience to His law. Deuteronomy 27, verse 26, the last verse of that chapter, Cursed be anyone who doesn't confirm the words of this law by doing them. So unless you do all that is written in the law of God, He pronounces His curse over you. And over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament, God declares... If you disobey, there will be curses. If you disobey, there will be punishment. If you disobey, you'll die. If you disobey, you'll face His wrath. He will by no means clear the guilty. Now God could very well make all those statements and then go back on His Word But then he himself would be a violator of his own word. In other words, God can't simply decide to forgive and just overlook your sin and let someone off the hook. He couldn't do that because his word would no longer stand true and his character would be besmirched. You might imagine that God is like you. You might imagine that because you can get over things and not always demand repayment in kind, you might imagine that because you are so magnanimous that God must be like you. But you don't understand that all of that is more a statement of your character than it is of His. God couldn't just overlook sin because it is at the end of the day, a complete contradiction to His character and an absolute revulsion to everything that He is or has made. He despises sin and every single sin makes Him angry. Every idle, sinful word, as Jesus says in Matthew, every one of them will be held to account. Psalm 711, God is a righteous judge and He feels indignation with the wicked every day. He feels indignation because He is righteous. Because His holy character is repulsed by sin. Psalm 5, 4 You're not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not or cannot dwell with you. It's impossible. God can't God can't dwell in a place where there's evil. He can't dwell in a place where there are guilty people. People guilty of violation. People guilty of rebellion. Habakkuk 1.13. God's eyes are too pure to look at evil and he cannot see that which is wrong. God can't look at it. He can't gaze at it. He can't dwell with it. You can't be in the presence of God and be guilty is what all that says. God can't tolerate it without it staining and marring his character. We all get a small sense of that when we feel a self a sense of agitation within ourselves. We see a situation at work or at school or at society when someone gets off scot free. That word, scot-free, by the way. I, I was curious. I went and looked it up. It's it's an old English phrase. It basically means... Uh, the word scot, S-C-O-T, basically means a lot or a portion or a share. And, and what scot-free meant back in the day was someone who received something without having to pay their lot, their share, their cost. And so we always feel some sense of indignation when when we see someone who is awarded something without without them paying the cost, without them giving their lot, without them earning it in some way. We always feel this sense of injustice that takes place and it agitates us. And that is even looking through the lens of our own marred and fallen perspective. We're still agitated by that. Well, God, in all of His holiness, feels not just agitation. He feels anger. He feels wrath. He's angry every day at all of the ways that people sin and have not yet paid for it. And so when it comes to the issue of sin, the issue of guilt, God can't simply let it slip by. He can't. He can't simply clear us. He can't simply let us go free. All of His anger towards sin has to be satisfied. All of His wrath and His judgment has to be poured out. But what Paul tells us here in Romans 3.25 is that that's exactly what takes place at the cross. That Jesus in His crucifixion absorbs Every bit of God's wrath and fury against every single sin of every person who ever believes. And by absorbing that wrath, he satisfies God's anger against every one of your sins. The ones you've already committed. The ones you'll commit today and the ones you'll commit in the future God's entire wrath against every one of those sins was absorbed completely and sufficiently by the sacrifice of Christ. This is what the word propitiation means. And Paul uses it here when he talks about, beginning in verse 24, saying we're justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God Put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. I know that's a lot of technical language, but this is essentially what propitiation means. It means a satisfaction. And what he's telling us here is that the death of Christ, the blood of Christ, he's he's using it there metonymically, the blood referring to His death. He's saying here that this death of Christ satisfies God's wrath against all of our sin. So that from a legal standpoint, it allows every single sin to be punished. It allows God's wrath and God's anger against sin to be fully expressed in a way that satisfies His holy character. And thus ultimately allows God to both punish sin and forgive sin the sinner jesus by his blood then placates and absorbs all the wrath that god has against you and by doing that he completely releases us from the wrath of god and releases god to pour out grace mercy and kindness Unending to you. Now don't listen to all that. And imagine that what's going on is on one side you've got the loving and kind Christ. And on the other side you have God the Father who is capricious and bad tempered. And subject to mood swings and vindictive and malicious. Now that's the way the pagans think about their gods. They think about their gods who are offended by some petty or trivial thing that, that you might do or that, some, that their nation might do. And when that happens, they rush out there, always having to offer some sacrifice or go do some deed or, or whatever it might be, in order to placate. The, the temper tantrums of their God. And don't imagine that when we're talking about God, uh, uh, offering this propitiation, that that's what's taking place for, for one very obvious reason. That this isn't us offering anything. This isn't us responding to some mood swing by God. It is very clearly what Paul says here, this is God setting forth Christ as a propitiation. This is God himself putting forward his own answer to his own anger against sin. The very God who is so furious against sin, so demanding that it be punished, is the same God who provided the solution and the answer that His punishment demanded. As John Stott says, quote, It cannot be emphasized too strongly that God's love is the source, not the consequence of the atonement. It wasn't as if God was out there and He was just just carried away with this irrational anger until the loving Christ stepped forward and somehow persuaded Him to set aside that anger and finally accept us. No, this was all God's plan. This is what He tells us right here. God sets forth. God puts forth Christ as the propitiation. This was what the loving God set forth in His own plan to placate His own anger so that in the cross of Christ we really do see the wrath of God and the love of God on beautiful display. A love which devised the cross. Not a cross that created the love. What it created was really a legal in a just and a righteous way for God to deal with us apart from His anger. When you hear that, you begin to understand then the profound truth of Exodus 34 that we read earlier. God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but by no means clearing the guilty. Moses heard that, the prophets heard that, They accepted the Word of God, even though in their minds they could not have conceived of how that could be possible. But what Paul is telling us here is that it finally was presented. It finally was made manifest. It finally was demonstrated in the cross of Christ. At first glance, those two thoughts which seem incongruent, they seem incompatible, they seem conflicted. And they would have always been that way were it not for the majesty of the cross. Which is the majesty that Paul goes on to say in the rest of verse 25 and 26. This propitiation, he says, this was to show God's righteousness. Because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time. So that He might be just And the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. So that he can be at one and the same time the judge and the savior. The wrathful God and the loving God. It always grieves me. When I have to sit back and listen to any kind of modern iteration of the gospel which becomes embarrassed about the wrath of God, embarrassed as if somehow presenting God in the full definition of His wrath uh, creates a conundrum that we cannot escape because it not only is... a, a, a Uh, an unworthy, maybe a blasphemous thought of God, but it denigrates the full majesty and glory of the cross of Christ. What Paul's telling us here is that this cross demonstrates, it sets forth, it presents two monumental realities about God, that He is on one hand just, and on the other hand He is the justifier. And that takes us to the final truth that Paul shares about this righteousness, and that is the fact that it demonstrated, it has demonstrated God's absolute holiness. It's demonstrated His absolute holiness. It demonstrates God's righteousness, Paul says, in a very important way, because in the past, It might have appeared that God was indifferent about sin. It says, in in his righteousness, or excuse me, in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. And someone might have concluded that God is not very serious about sin or that his judgment wasn't so severe. And why is that? Because what they experienced, what they saw, was this passing over, this overlooking. Not only. Did He care? But He cared immensely enough to plan the cross. But none of those things should be misinterpreted as if God was somehow indifferent about the sins that were being committed. That He really didn't take notice. That He he somehow had uh, changed His standards. God intentionally and graciously didn't deal with it right at the moment. But none of that means that God didn't care. None of it means that He had set aside His holiness. You can't judge, in other words, God's character and attitude towards sin based on those past actions or inactions. Because it was simply a demonstration of divine forbearance. Divine patience. Paul says this is the way God behaved toward former sins. Or some translations say sins previously committed. He's referring to the time before the cross. Times in the Old Testament. Particularly for people who placed their faith in God but still sinned. And yet God didn't punish them. He didn't judge them. And someone might conclude then that God is impartial. God is unjust. They might conclude that God had somehow compromised his commitment to righteousness and holiness and dealing graciously with all these people. But Paul's explaining that God was dealing with these people apart from their sin because He was looking forward or looking ahead to the cross of Christ. Those sins were overlooked because God knew that they would eventually be covered And so the message is don't misinterpret all of that forbearance and all of that patience as people so often do. The Bible speaks much about the patience and forbearance of God. Remember even back over in chapter 2, verse 4, Paul had said, we're not to presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience. Knowing that God's kindness is meant To lead you to repentance. There are people for whom God has been very patient. They have sat under the teaching of God's Word for years. They have been in homes where God is honored. Where His Word is exalted. And His patience and His forbearance has been immense toward them. And they misinterpret that. As if God doesn't care about their sins. As if there is really no dire need for punishment against their sins. As if God... It's just going to forever overlook their sin. Second Peter 3.9 The Lord isn't slow to fulfill His promises. As some count slowness, slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is slow in His anger toward you because He wants you to come to repentance. But that all comes to an end. It all comes to an end. God's forbearance should never be misinterpreted to mean allowance or approval or affirmation of your rebellion. Whether it was believers in the Old Testament or whether it's unbelievers today, the answer is always the same. Whether it's looking forward towards the cross or whether it's looking back Towards the cross. God shows forbearance and kindness. But it will have its end in one of two things. It will have its end in you standing under the wrath of God in the day of judgment. Or it will have its end by Christ standing in your place. And taking the wrath for you. Paul says all of this allows God to stand just to stand right that is to say all of this demonstrates that God demands the full penalty for all of your sins that you've ever committed he will he will hold it accountable God means every word of every warning and every demand that He's ever laid before you. And in those three hours on the cross, when Jesus hung there, what this tells us is that all of hell was poured out on Him. All of the agony of alienation from God. All the fury and the wrath and the scorn. All of the humiliation and the shame. Jesus took it all on Himself. And God counted it as sufficient to pay the penalty. Of everyone who would ever believe in Him. The full magnitude of God's hatred for sin is demonstrated then. By the magnitude of The preciousness of what was offered to satisfy His wrath. Nothing less, in other words, than this absolutely innocent and pure and perfect and spotless Son of God. The highest demand because the highest price had to be paid for it. And yet, Paul says, the cross also demonstrates that He is the justifier. He's the justifier, not just the just, but the one who makes just. Not only the one who is right in the way that he deals with sin, but the one who makes people right when they're in their sin. The cross of Jesus Christ satisfies both God's desire for justice according to his law and for mercy according to his loving character. And so God offers Christ as a propitiation that through Christ... He can take the place of all those who, who trust Him. Pays the pull, full penalty for your sin. Takes the full wrath of God against every violation. And that is propitiation. You might say, yeah, but that's really, that's really not even fair, at least as I think about it. I mean, really, can that serve justice? We often illustrate this as if you know, you're know you in a courtroom and the judge is behind the bench pronouncing the judgment against the sinner. And then he arises from his chair and comes out from behind his bench and takes off all of his uh, legal attire, his robe and everything and offers himself there in the place of the criminal. But what's often left out of that equation, what's often really not stated and needs to be stated is the issue of personal offense. Because in any kind of courtroom scene like that today, rarely, if ever, is the judge himself personally violated or personally offended by the the, the sin or by the, the lawbreaker. But in the case of God, the offense for which we stand before Him is against Him personally. We don't allow judges to do that. Judges who have some personal issue in the matter are are, are expected to recuse themselves from those cases. Why? Because we can't trust them in their fallen character to be unbiased and to make a proper judgment. But in this case, you have a perfectly holy, righteous God, who stands in judgment as the one who not only makes the law, judges according to the law, but the one who is personally violated, personally offended by what you do. And at that point, when he steps down from the bar, if you will, and places himself before you, there is literally no one who can dispute because there's no one who can legitimately claim some some uh, uh, sense that their, uh, their, their sense of judgment isn't satisfied. Their sense of justice isn't righted. They aren't, in other words, party to this issue. And they have no case to make. God is both the offended and the judge. And He takes the place as the offender. All of this, Paul says, allows him to be just and to be the justifier. All of this, Paul says, proves God's absolute righteousness. His character can never be called into question. His holiness is absolutely intact. And although you might imagine from time to time, You might speculate that God really doesn't care whether sin is dealt with. You might imagine that your sin is not that significant to Him. But you've misinterpreted His forbearance and kindness. And what this message does for you, what this passage does for you is calls you back to the reality of God's wrath. Because all the wrath that was poured out on the most precious gift that was ever given in this universe. All that wrath awaits you. If you leave here today and you're not in Christ. If you leave here today and you imagine that God is just going to deal kindly with you because you're a good person you leave here today and imagine that God, uh, like your buddy or like your friend or like your spouse or, her, or your parents or whoever it might be, is just going to go lenient on you. You misunderstand God and you don't know anything about the cross. God means what He says. His anger is real. But praise God, so is His love. So is His grace. And He's offered an answer for all of that. He's offered an answer to you. That if you repent, if you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, if you confess yourself the guilty sinner that you are, He's the justifier. He's the one that makes you right and cleanses you forever and ever of all unrighteousness. Our challenge to you today is if you're here... And that's where you are. You've never understood the wrath of God. You've never understood the place that you stand before Him. Hear the message of the cross. Respond today. I'm going to close us in a word of prayer in just a moment. I want you to find me after the service. I want to have the opportunity to show you from God's Word how all the shame and the guilt, how all of the alienation, how all of the wrath that you've been under. Can be wiped away. By faith in Christ. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father we're grateful for this passage. Thankful for this truth. It is. The fulcrum point. On which all eternity hinges. Not only speaking to us. Of justification and salvation. But speaking to us of the perfections and the majesty of Your holiness and Your wisdom. Lord, thank You for the cross of our Savior. Thank You for Your wisdom, for Your love. And thank You, Lord, for Your holiness, for never violating that which is beautiful and perfect. I pray, Father, that by Your grace and Your mercy, that those who are here today who don't understand any of those things would come to understand first and foremost that they are guilty before You and that You offer them forgiveness. I pray, Father, that You would draw their hearts even this day. Let them not rest. Let them not pass another sleepless night without coming to You.